So we are in week three of the elephant in the room. And so for those of you that haven't been here or that have missed some Sundays, what we did is our, what I did is I asked the congregation to fill out cards of topics that caused you guys consternation, problems, the things that you wish the church would talk about, but the church avoids because pastors are smarter than me. And, and so the first week we talked about the exclusivity of Jesus, meaning that what we talked about was, is Jesus the only way to heaven? And then last week we talked about evil. And if God is so good, why doesn't he just fix this mess that we call the world? You see, we, we and, and this week we deal with another just gloriously fun subject. And so it's found in, in John 8, and I'll just read it. And, and for those of you that have been in church, you will have know this story. John 8, starting in verse 2, but early in the morning he was back again at the temple, and he is Jesus. And the crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. And he was speaking, and the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, the law of Moses says, Stoner, what do you say? And they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. And they kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I go and sin no more. So this morning we're going to talk about three characters in this section. We're going to talk about the accused, the woman. We've heard story after story probably preached about her. And we're going to talk about the accusers, the religious leaders of the day, those that knew all the answers for everything. And we're going to talk about Jesus. And in doing those three things, my hope is that we come up with an idea of what sin is and how we're to respond to it. And, and sin, for those of you that are, are here and that have been here for, for three weeks, it's like, please know that as your pastor, I yearn three weeks from now when I get to talk about something like awesome, fun, and easy. <laughs> it's like I have it circled on my calendar. Buy yourself a piece of cake and preach a nice, easy sermon. <laughs> In that order. And... Yet, this is one of the topics that came up with the cards. And in the cards, what they, what they wrote of was basically the, the first one of the, there were groups of them, and they were worded in different ways. But one of the, one of the phrases or one of the, one of the cards was, what do we do as Christians to people that are sinning? What is our responsibility as believers in Jesus Christ to tell someone the truth even when they don't have that worldview, that perspective? Or is it our responsibility to? That was one. And another one was, are there degrees of sin? 
And how that was translated is, hey, why is the church, the church being general Christianity, not the church being specific to 23? But why is the church uptight with one type of sin, but then seems to ignore another type? Like, oh, those are just awesomely fun questions to not have to answer. And yet, in reality, it's something, you know, you talk about the elephant in the room. We brought, we shipped him back, by the way, for those of you that saw him last week. <laughs> but it is one of the largest, most obvious, yet most undiscussed issues in Christendom. Is the idea of the inconsistency of Christianity in relation to sin, and sin being defined as an offense against someone else, against yourself, and against God. A sin is an offense, is a wrongdoing against someone else. It is also a wrongdoing against yourself. And then finally, it is a wrongdoing against God. And I know because I've been around long enough and talked to enough of you and lived outside of the church world for an extended period of time, I know that this troubles the, the world. Because the world will say, like, dude, why are you guys so uptight? Why are you, like, you, you like hitting all the bumps of life? Like, no wonder you guys never smile. Everything bugs you. And then I go to another side, so that's one argument out there, and then you come in this, in here, and it's like you have to talk about certain things. The bad ones. The difficult ones. And so I stand before you this morning needing your prayers, because Wayne wouldn't talk about this. <laughs> But in my heart of hearts, I hope that at the end of this morning, in the next 30 minutes, that we realize that there's no such thing as innocence and sin. That we realize that God is asking us to carry a certain role because he models a certain role. And so I hope that as we study this story, as we look at these three characters and the weapon one of them used, that we leave here encouraged, that we leave here empowered, and that we leave here with a model that's valid for today's world. Amen? Amen. So let's pray. So Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word that comes alive. And I thank you that God, even stories that were written so long ago can speak to us today. That a story of a woman being dragged out in a street where there are no cars or anything else can apply to a world that is instantaneous in its news, that is filled with, with, with social media streams that is both accusatory and ignorant. And so, God, I pray that everything that I say this morning would be of you and that the words that aren't of you, Father, would be either just ignored or just fall to the floor and let go. That, God, I pray your Holy Spirit would speak to us no matter what role we find ourselves in. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would convict where is needed, would encourage where is needed, and, and at the end of the day, that we would walk out of here knowing the need that we have 
across the board for Jesus. So I pray this in your name. I thank you for what you're going to do for these people and their attention. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. So verse 3, and he was speaking. The teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And they put her in front of the crowd. So most of the time when we look at this section of scripture, we immediately rush to the woman. Now this morning we're going to start with the group. The Pharisees. My most unfavorite group of people known to man. The Pharisees were a group of people that felt in in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Israel's culture, that they had the responsibility to make sure not only that everyone knew the law, which was the first few books of this Bible, but everyone followed the law. It was their responsibility, they felt, as a group of people, to be God's policeman. That was, that was basically what they were hired to do. That was what... Their right was, uh-oh. And, and, and so it was, a, it was a tenuous position. It was like, okay, so I'm responsible. I study the law. I know the law. I can quote the law. I can tell you what I've added to the law because the other side of the Pharisees was God's word was never enough. That by the end of the beginning of the New Testament, they had added 600 plus rules and regulations to the book itself. And so they expected everybody to, to, to find out about it. And it says that they, they took this lady caught in adultery, and we'll talk about the dynamics of that one. But they took this lady, they dragged her out, and they said this, the law of Moses says you need to put her down. You need to stone her. You need to kill her. And they used the word of God as a weapon. And if you've sat in church long enough or been around religious people enough, that's a tendency for us. We pull out scripture and we use it as a weapon. Now, now you could respond to me and say, well, yeah, but Dave, Hebrews tells us that the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. Sounds like a weapon to me. And it's cuts between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. See, it's meant to cut. See, it's meant to address. See, it's meant to attack. See, it's meant to point out what people do wrong. And yes and no. Where the Pharisee gets it wrong and where the religious people, I think, get it wrong, it's like they forget that this book is written for the reader, not the quoter. It's written for the man or woman that seeks to know God's heart, not seeks to beat someone over the head with it. You see, because what Hebrews also tells us, when Hebrews tells us that it is sharper than a two-edged sword, it says in verse 12 that it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. So the religious leader who goes out and says to Jesus, hey, the rule says that this person should be crucified, this person should be stoned, this person should be doing it wrong. They're reading the book in the context of someone else out there. They're reading the book to make sure that, 
All the rest of you sorry people, get your life right. <coughs> but what the word is for is for someone like me to read it, and it separates my heart and my desire. And it identifies what I struggle with and what I need to address. The Holy Spirit has never sent the Word of God to be this club in which I can condemn this and that and that, and yet I never have to read it for myself. Hebrews, who tells us that it is a sword, is used to define and differentiate my own motives from what I'm trying to do. So when the Pharisee says... Hey, Jesus, the law says this. What the Pharisee was really about had nothing to do with the woman. It had everything to do with Christ. And it was another way of trapping this teacher that was drawing a crowd, that was talking about the kingdom of God here on earth, that was showing love to people that they despised. And they were saying like, It had nothing to do with the lady. The lady was just a tool to make a point. <clears throat> you see, in the story, when we talk about sinners, we normally talk about the woman because the woman is, is obvious. It's an obvious choice. And isn't that what religion does? It points out the obvious choice while it ignores the more damaging one. And so, so in the story, there are two sinners. Yes, there is the woman that we'll talk about. But what I would suggest to you that equally as damaging to the community that they're a part of were the religious leaders that drug someone out to test another. We, we look at Matthew 7. It says, why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you've got a log in your own? Well, that's just not a fun verse for people that like to point out wrong in people. I'm just going to say that out loud. Right? It's just like a bad verse. It's like one of those verses like, it's like one of those verses that separate motives. Oh, man, Jesus, why you got to get all up in my face about that one? I like to point out specks in people's eye. And I can because I wear glasses ignore the log in mine. But for a believer, that's not an option. For you and I who profess faith in, in Christ, we don't have the right to be judge, jury, and executioner. Even to a woman that's so obviously wrong. Even to a woman that's dragged out in the street. And when you read that story... Our second character in the book, in the story, is this woman. And she says she's caught in adultery. And for anybody that has read that story, there's two questions that just like blare out. Like, where's the dude? Exactly. All the women are like, where's the dude? I'm a guy and I even ask, like, where's the dude? You're going to drag them out, drag them both out. You're going to stone them, kill them both. Makes sense. I would think. The other question that I have is like, you got religious leaders playing like stalker creeper dudes. <laughs> like, and nobody asks them, like, 
How long did you have to follow someone around to find that? I mean, did, did you like set up like a spy thing where you, you spied on this person or heard? I bet you if you squeezed her, glitter would come out. But here's what happens when we ask stories, we ask questions like that. Is that we assume that someone's a victim when they're clearly in the wrong. You see, the reality is, is because the guy wasn't dragged out doesn't make the woman any less guilty. That's kind of, that's kind of a bad way of looking at life, but it's true. When we look for a victim, we believe that the things that we do are done in a vacuum. And when we talk about life, we, when we talk about sin, an offense against another, offense against myself, or an offense or wrongdoing against God, in this story, there is an offender. Or there are offenders. One of the offenders are the Pharisees who use this as a weapon to shish kebab people that are doing wrong. But the other person that is wrong is the woman. And what happens when we negate and when we believe what the world tells us is like, oh, nobody gets hurt. I mean, it's just two people. And, and, and what society would tell you right now is like, just lighten up about the whole sex thing. Y'all are just uptight. Just relax. And we minimize the impact choices can have in us. When you read the, the, the last section of that story, it even says, Jesus says, where are your accusers? And then he says what? Go and sin. Go and sin no more. So it's never, an, it's never a, a discussion on whether it's right or wrong. It's clearly wrong. Jesus himself says it's wrong. And so we go back to this book. Like, the, the biggest discussion, and, and I'm, this is, I'm citing Wayne, sort of. So if I get it wrong, oh no, if you're upset, Wayne, Wayne, raise your hand. Okay, it's Wayne. And one of the things that I struggle with, with what the world says, is like, hey, there's degrees of sin. And the church kind of handles it that way. The church normally attacks uh, uh, sexual sin, but it ignores gossip, it ignores gluttony, it ignores all this other stuff because that's a little quieter, right? That's a little less obtrusive. Like, I can live with that, that's, but it's not like this. And so we look at sin as a graded scale. And I was like, I know that that Romans tells us that what? All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So there's not a person in this room, though you might think you're perfect, there's not a person in this room that matches up to God. Whoa. You guys are okay with that, right? That doesn't like, oh, Dave, you just jacked my entire Sunday. <laughs> right? We all have, a, have an ability to have kind of an honest perspective of our own life. That we've all... We've all sinned. Even in, in Romans 3, 9, and 10 says, what should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? 
And if you want to take license with Scripture, what shall we include then? That our Christians are better than others? No, not at all, for we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, whether people that believe in God or people that believe in little g-gods by the billions, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even, uh, no one is righteous. And then in verse 23, for everyone has sinned. We fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God in his grace makes us Right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. The ramifications of sin are the same. We are separated from God. We might want a relationship, but sin separates us. But, and this is Wayne's wisdom, the consequences of sin are different. The results of sin are the same, but to the human, the consequences of sin are different. And we can point to something real simple. You look at the IV drug user, and you could, you could, you could list after list after list of consequences of that choice. You can drive down the freeway and see billboards about meth addicts, and you can go, there's a consequence of that choice. And yet, for us in our hearts, there's consequence after consequence of the choices that we made and the choices that we make. We can look at the woman and go, man, that's unfair. She was dragged out, and the dude was left behind, and the creepers were ignored. But the fact of the matter is, is she jacked up. Period. And that is sin. It's not whether I'm caught or not caught, because in, in reality, the difficulty of sin is not the degree of which I do, but the distance of which I am pulled away from God in the midst of my habits, in the midst of my addictions, in the midst of my, my desires, in the midst of the flesh that so easily entangles me. You see, sin makes God's word irrelevant. And if you've ever caught yourself in the midst of a habit, you know that this thing becomes impossible to read. And we, we read it and it's like, oh, that, that doesn't apply to me. That whole speck and log thing doesn't apply to me. Where's the next verse? Jesus loves me. This I know. You see, when, when we're caught up in a habit or an addiction, this becomes seemingly irrelevant. And it's not because it is irrelevant, but my own hearts are disconnected from the Holy Spirit because of our habits. Sin also robs us of joy. I'm convinced people are miserable not because God robs us of our joy, but because of our own lifestyle just sucks it dry. That we decide to do things that just rob us and make us miserable, and yet we continue to go back to it and back to it and back to it. And we know this, sin breeds discontentment. Sin has a wonderful way of talking to you and convincing you that there's something else out there that's better than what you have now. And sin makes us feel separated. 
separated from God, separated from his word, separated from his body, and separated from our friends that get in our face when we're being stupid. When we're in the midst of making bad choices and we have a friend going, hey, you know what, that's going to leave a mark and you might not want to do that one. We get uptight and if we are not willing to address this, if we're not allowing the Holy Spirit to, to deal with this, then we do what comes natural. We walk away. And I find someone that will pat me on the back or find someone that tells me I deserve happiness or find someone that convinces me that this is no big deal, that there, this is a victimless crime. Is it okay? Uh, so I'll be really like blunter than normally blunt. Which is saying something, huh? I know, like my wife's freaking out now. <laughs> if you want to see the world's ploy in destroying humanity, look at how it talks about sex right now. That the idea of of, of sexual relations is, is innocent. It's two willingly partners that, that just get together. That a hookup's just a hookup, that if I swipe, what is it, swipe right? If I swipe right, then everything is great and, and I have the right to swipe left and it's all good and just chill out and relax. Yet God created this amazing gift to be shared between a husband and a wife because it is more than a physical act. That it is more than just a choice or a way to fix loneliness or a way to feel more important or more beautiful or more desirable. It is so much more than that and yet the world continues to dumb it down to where we actually believe that it is nothing more than what society tells us it is. And in doing that, we deal with the consequences of that. People that have multiple partners, when they exchange a ring, cannot help but have them play in their heads. People that jump from relationship to relationship in hope of being happy, discover that they're never truly happy, and then every time they're intimate, they leave a part of themselves with someone that they'll never see again. And, and so there's this fragmentation of humanity who says there's no consequences when there's two willing partners. But sin at its core is against another. It is against yourself, and it is against God. Stop doing yourself wrong. Stop bringing offense to yourself by the choices that you make. God has so much more for you than that. And that is why, and I think I can build a case for that, this topic of sin, this graduated scale of sin and where we want to attack one and ignore the other or we want to say it's victimless and yet we know that it's not, the only answer that I can give you is the third character in the story. It's Christ. You see, it's not about being enlightened by society or embracing a postmodern world or saying that Christianity is just filled with tradition and it's beyond and, and this is just how the world is. Why settle for brokenness when God promises wholeness? 
Why settle for being fragmented when Christ himself says, you are no longer a slave to this stuff. You are free in Christ. You are free in me. It says in verse 6 that they were trying to trap him into saying something and they could use against him. And Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger and they kept demanding an answer. And so he stood up, all right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stopped down again and wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. I didn't realize this, but in, well, I knew this. In Jewish tradition, the witness that brought the accusation against the accused had the right to throw the first stone. But the same law said someone who brought false witness against somebody would be jeopardized by the same measurement. Meaning that if I brought something against somebody that, that was wrong, I would be judged by that the same way. And so when you look at adultery, it's like, well, there's sin, but false witness with Jesus was, was, was equally damaging. The people didn't care about what they were doing. They, it was not about the woman. It was about trapping this guy that was causing them so much pain and anguish. And instead of Jesus addressing and throwing a stone and using the word, he simply turned it around and said, okay, whoever among you hasn't done something wrong, throw it. And it's, in my opinion, it is one of the most gracious moments in Jesus' ministry. Because the Son of God who knows all things could have said, oh, really? You imagine being God in front of God going, hey, you need to kill this one? And God knows everything. I mean, there ain't nothing that the guy doesn't know. And you're holding a rock, getting ready to throw it to trap him. And if we were honest and you were Jesus, what would you do? Hold on. Let me get my smartphone out. And what? God Google you. And let me just go down the list. We'll start with the oldest first because your guys' is an impressive list. Oh, Dave, yeah, 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 yeah. But in grace, Jesus does what I think we do or we are asked to do. Not to call out the obvious, but to even let the accuser and the accused see the freedom that is meant in a relationship with Christ. You see, Jesus didn't condemn even the religious leaders that sought to condemn the woman. Jesus simply asked a question in hopes of bringing conviction. They didn't condemn the person, they convicted him. And that is why it says, from the oldest to the youngest, they walked away and said, I'm doubt. Then it says, Jesus said in verse 10, stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Don't you have even one of them? And they used the word condemn. 
Use one of them to condemn you. And that is the difference between my Christ, our Jesus, and the world. That it is not about condemnation. That if we bring truth to someone to condemn them and to remind them what dirtballs they really are and how stupid they are and how wrong they are, that is not the heart of Jesus. You ask like, okay, what are we supposed to do with this book? It's a sword meant to cut. Well, let it cut the reader, not the quoter. Let it cut the person honestly seeking a relationship with God so that they can come to understand that they have drifted apart. It is not our responsibility to be the Holy Spirit to this world. We are not wired that way. We're not set up that way. Why? Because what motivates us isn't altogether pure. Can I be so bold as to just call that one out? If it's about motive and if it's about reasoning, a lot of the reason why we do is not as clean as we oh, I just want the best for them. Then why are you going around talking about them for 40 other people? Why am I ruining their reputation by busting on them to this guy who doesn't even know them? But Jesus gives us a model. Jesus takes the accuser and says, it's probably not a good idea because if you throw that thing, it's going to come right back and hit you right between the eyes. And then in the accused, he does not minimize the stupidity of her choice. But he doesn't condemn her for it. He says, hey, don't do that. Go and don't do that no more. Don't sin. Why? Because it leads to brokenness. It leads to where you're at. You might not be dragged out in public, but I can guarantee you that you're dragged out in your head because of shame and guilt and condemnation that you put on yourself. The world today doesn't need crowds dragging us out in the middle of the street going, the Bible says. Why? Because the majority of us do it ourselves. The majority of us take ourselves by the hair, lay it down, and just go, I am not fit for anything. And that is why, why we need Christ in our lives. That's the only thing that I know that fixes the craziness that this world perpetrates. It says Romans 2, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. The goodness of God. Romans 6 tells us that sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. And after Jesus says, go and sin no more, he says in verse 12, it says, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. When the two guilty parties stood before Christ, he confronted both of them. And I say two guilty parties intentionally. Because what I would submit to you is the Pharisee and the woman caught in adultery is opposite sides of the same coin. One is a victim, one believes that they are completely innocent, and neither of them are. It says... The story tells us that sin is never ignored, ever ignored. 
sin is never ignored. It might be ignored by this world. The choices that we make might be ignored. But to God, it is not. Why? Because it breaks God's heart because of the consequences it has on his creation. It destroys him. Not because I'm like, you're not living like you're supposed to, but the sheer consequences of what happens to me as one of his children when I repeatedly do stupid things. That is sin. Like, well, it's wrong. It's more than wrong. It's destructive. And God wants so much more for his kids. God doesn't yearn to like take life away and go, oh, you're going to live a really cruddy life now because you're a Christian. No, he wants to expose you to a world that is rich and that is full where you are not a master to anything other than his son whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. Why saddle yourself up with chains that restrict your very breath and the life that God has for you because it's a quick fix? But when sin is confronted, this He's not, the person's not condemned. The person's convicted, which is what the word of God's meant to do. It's to speak truth into life, to shine light into darkness, to reveal things that are done in secret so that we can go before God and say, I am sorry, help me get away from this stuff, that we can experience life. And in the midst of that confrontation and conviction, there is always hope. And no matter what I've done, no matter what you have done, it is covered by the blood of Christ. And no matter what you bring to the table, no matter how long the list is, no matter how many times you have felt that you have been dragged out in front of the population and dropped there and pointed at and say, look at her, the law says kill her. No matter how many times that has happened, there is a Jesus there that stands able to destroy but stops and says no where are your those that accuse you where are those that condemn you <coughs> they're gone and neither do I live the life that I have intended you to live so sin has different consequences. As believers, let us allow the Holy Spirit to convict. As believers, let us never condemn. As believers in Christ, let us always pick up this word first for ourselves. And then if someone asks in the context of relationship, then we can share truth in the context of relationship. And then let us go before him first before we go before him about another person and let us just have an honest conversation. God, if you need me to address things in my life, please speak to me so that I can experience the life that you have intended me to live. And let us have the courage to have that conversation with the God that's created us. Amen? You guys okay? Okay, why don't we stand?